Acts 19 is where we're going to be as we continue marching through this book. And uh, we, left, we last left off um, with the word of God, the name of God, moving through the city of Ephesus, challenging and doing, moving in very tangible ways. And so after the events that opened the chapter 19, um, Paul's, Paul interacts with some almost Christians at the beginning of chapter 19. They didn't know about baptism of the Holy Spirit. They were kind of missing some pieces, and Paul fills them in. And then the Holy Spirit does some extraordinary moving in the people. The acclaim and the influence and the name of Jesus and the power of the gospel have the people and even the spiritual, the entire spiritual world is kind of on edge in Ephesus. Things are happening. The, the gospel is moving. After these events, um, it says that Paul spends about two years in Ephesus. And towards the end of that, Paul plans to leave and travel to Jerusalem. And I want you to see in chapter 19 uh, in verse 21. It says, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Acacia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. After I've been there, I must also see Rome. This phrase, this desire, this focus of Paul is kind of what sets the rest of the book in motion. Paul wants to go to Rome. Why? What's in Rome? What does he want to see there? It's not so much actually a what, so much as it's a who. Who is in Rome? Rome is the ruling and reigning power of the day. They dominate and control the power and the people of most of the known world. It is their culture, their language, their decisions, their philosophies that influence and affect everything all over the known world at this time. And at the top of that power system sits Caesar. He rules and reigns with no checks and balances. He is the ultimate authority in most of the known world at that time. It is his way or death. So what if, what if Caesar, with all of his power and authority and influence, what if his heart and mind and soul came to know that Jesus of Nazareth was God in the flesh who lived and died and rose from the dead to save the world from their sin and offer forgiveness, hope, and reconciliation? What if Caesar became a follower of Jesus. How would the world change? That's Paul's goal, is to get an audience with Caesar, to stand before the most powerful man in the world, to deliver the gospel, and to let the Holy Spirit do what he does in the hearts of people through the proclamation of God's word. And so from here on to the end of the book, Paul's goal and hope is to get to Rome. It's a bit of a roundabout way that he gets there, but that's what he has his sights set on. So I want to keep that in the back of our minds as we're looking at these final uh, 10 chapters or so, or seven or eight chapters or so of the book of Acts, is that at the end of the day, Paul's goal is to get to Rome. He wants to get in front of Caesar. And so this morning, we're going to continue as he starts to make his way on this journey. So I'm going to pray, and then we can jump into Acts uh, 19. So please bow your heads and pray with me. God, we thank you for today. We thank you for this opportunity to worship you, to celebrate you, to enjoy you. God, we thank you for this chance for us to gather and to just be together, to remind each other and remind ourselves that we're not in this life alone, that you are the God of community, that you have given us a community to lean into, to lean on and hold each other up when we struggle and to encourage one another when we are doing well. God, we pray for the kids up in Grace Place. We pray for the leaders as they 
lead and teach and love and serve the kids and the families of this church that the kids of our church might come to know you in an early age and walk with you for many, many, many years. That through the way that the leaders teach and interact with the kids, that they would come to see the way that you, God, love all of us. God, as we here open your word, as we continue in the book of Acts, you have a word for us this morning. There's a reason we are here today. There's a reason we are in this book at this time. And so whatever distractions, whatever things we have going on outside of this time in your word, God, I pray that you would help us to set those aside so that we can focus on you, so that we can hear from you and engage with you. God, you have something you want to do in our hearts and minds today. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do that, that we would be quiet enough to hear you speaking to us and bold enough to respond when you call us. God, as I preach, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. All right, so we're going to be in Acts 19. We're going to cover a lot of ground this morning, uh, but we're going to start in Acts 19. We'll pick it up in verse 23. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. There he, these he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear, not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Erasticus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Let's stop there. So Paul is getting ready on this trip, and he stays in Ephesus for a little while longer. He actually stays in Ephesus longer than just about anywhere else during all of his missionary journeys. And while in Ephesus, not unlike just about everywhere else he goes, a disturbance has arisen amongst the people. A man named Demetrius, a silversmith, takes notice of some change that has been happening in the city. He starts to put two and two together, and he doesn't like what he came up with. See, just about every city in the Roman Empire at that time had a specific god or goddess that they claimed as their own, that they were known for and known by. You know how, like, in... Illinois, we have the state bird, which is a cardinal. We have the state flower, which is a violet. Our city is known for hot dogs and wind and construction. You know, those things that, like, this is what Chicago's about. In Ephesus, it was the god Artemis, also known as the god Diana. The temple of Artemis is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was built and rebuilt multiple times. The most famous iteration of the temple was 377 feet long by 200 feet wide. 
It was held up by 127 columns, each column being 60 feet tall. It stood just outside of Ephesus proper, up on a hill, and dominated the skyline. It was filled with sculpture and art. At the heart of worship, the thing that the Ephesians clung to was this meteor that fell from the sky near Ephesus. It's actually mentioned in verse 35. It, already, it either already kind of looked like the form of a female body or somebody took a hammer and chiseled to it and kind of shaped it a little bit. But either way, that was kind of their big thing was the gods have given us this representation of Artemis. Artemis was considered the goddess of the hunt, the wilderness, wild animals, nature, vegetation, childbirth, childcare, and chastity. You had a thing, Artemis could take care of it for you. The temple of Artemis was also used as a treasury and bank of sorts for merchants, kings, and even other cities. The idea being that Artemis and her priests could protect your funds. So obviously, this goddess and her presence and influence dominated the city of Ephesus. One of the ways this occurred was through the shrines that were created by people like Demetrius. Verse 24 says he made silver shrines of the goddess. And he's not the only one. Many craftsmen of that day made their money selling Artemis figures and creations. People would either buy them to take them back home with them. If they were traveling to Ephesus, they would buy an Artemis statue to take it home to remember their trip to worship Artemis at home. Or you would take that little shrine and you would take it up to the temple of Artemis and offer it kind of as a sacrifice, as a, a offering of goodwill to the goddess so that she would bless you. It's kind of like you walk around any major tourist attraction in our country and find shops and storefronts that sell t-shirts and keychains and all number of things sold to remember the place you went, right? There was probably a store in Ephesus that said, I heart Ephesus, right? It's just kind of stuff that fills our houses. Demetrius gathers many of the craftsmen together and says to them, look, we all know where our bread is buttered. We all know that we make our money selling items dedicated to Artemis. Check your receipts, fellas, because business is on the decline. We might be in trouble, and I know why. He says in verse 26, this Paul character has persuaded and turned people away from the worship of Artemis. He says to people that the true God, gods made with hands, are not gods at all. If this continues, he says to the crowd, not only is our business in trouble, but the respect and influence of Artemis is in jeopardy. She's worshipped around the world, and we can't let that stop. The people hear Demetrius' words, and they lose their minds. They start yelling, great as Artemis of the Ephesians. The city turns into an uproar real quick. They were real bored. Anytime someone wanted to start a riot, man, they were ready to go. The crowd grows. They rush together into the theater. It's a large open-air gathering space, and they grab a few of Paul's companions as hostages, maybe? I'm not totally sure why, but they grab a couple of his traveling companions. Now, Paul hears about the situation. He's been in the midst of a couple of these already in Acts, and he wants to go and talk it out and figure out what's going on. His friends keep him there. Some of the local authority that he made friends with and say, do not go into that theater. You will die. This is not going to end well. Look at verse 32. Verse 32 says, now some cried out one thing, some another. For the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized he was a Jew, for about two hours, they cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. This is a mess. 
The crowd at this point don't even know why they're there. Some of them are angry. I've been stirred up by Demetrius. They're there because they're angry. Other people heard about something happening, and they show up. Other people think it's the line for the hot dogs, and they show up. It's just chaos. And some people just want to see the world burn, and they just want to go and start a fight. Why does all this happen? Why has this chaos erupted in Ephesians, in Ephesus? Because Paul has been persuading people away from the worship of Artemis. Remember what Paul said in Acts 17, when he's in Athens and he's in the Oropagus, he said then, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He was reasoning and appealing to the minds and hearts of the people, and many were turning away from their idol worship and toward the gospel, and so these people in towns like Ephesus and the surrounding area no longer had need for items, for trinkets and items to celebrate and worship Artemis, and it's affecting the city as a whole. Now, I think there's two big, there's two application points I want to pull from what's happening here in Ephesus. One is kind of big picture, and then one will get a little more personal with it. So let's start with the big picture one. The gospel here, what's happening in Acts 19 is that the gospel is changing the entire economic structure of this city. It begins to alter the way things run and function. And it is the gospel alone that has the power to do something like this. We're convinced in this country that it's a political party or a certain person or a model of commerce or some other positive way of thinking that can change or alter the way our world works, and that's just not true. The power and message of the gospel is the only thing that has the authority to truly change individuals, communities, cities, cultures. Everything else is behavior modification at best, or it's a temporary pendulum swing. It doesn't actually restore or replace or help what is broken in this world, but rather the pendulum swings from one side to the other, and instead of looking up at the, the, the pain and the hurt that's over here, the pendulum swings over here, and we focus, oh, look, it's new, it's different, it's changed, and then eventually we get angry and sad and broken over here, so it swings back, and just back and forth, it's just distractions. But the Bible is showing us here in Acts 19, and if you've been following with us for the last year in Acts, in the book of Acts, it has continually showed us that it is the message of the good news that has real life-changing effects here and now. Faith in Jesus, believing the gospel, it is not just a for later, when I'm older, when I get myself cleaned up, or when I'm on my deathbed. It's not just for a later thing. Yes, the gospel and putting your faith in, the, in Christ has eternal effects, but it has real life effects here and now as well. It has the power to alter our very existence and what we experience in this life right now, and it has the power to alter what generations after us will experience. If we believe that the gospel is what Scripture says it is, if we believe the eternal results of faith in Jesus is eternity forever in the presence of God, wanting and needing for nothing in perfect paradise, why then can't the gospel move and change and shift cultures here and now? Why do we think that the gospel is limited in what it can accomplish in our world today? We talked last week about a person, before you know Christ, realizing how in despair and hopelessness you are without Jesus. The renewing of our hearts and minds by the work of the Holy Spirit, if we believe that that can happen, if we believe that that has happened on an individual basis, again, why can't we believe that the gospel, that the Holy Spirit can't work in much larger crowds? 
What's being talked about in Acts 19 is a massive shift in culture that was happening because of the gospel. It is the exact reason why we are in the midst of this 21-day fasting and prayer for the city of Chicago. We are lifting our voices and hearts and our requests to God on behalf of this city. It's why we have organizations like the Chicago Partnership and Chicagoland United in Prayer, people, Christians, churches, leaders wanting to cry out to God on behalf of this city. Our city is a broken, dark, and tired place. It is known for its corruption and violence. And whether or not you grew up here or you're just here for a temporary season, this is the place God has called you for this time. So the people of God are to seek the welfare of this place, the shalom of this city. And one of the most powerful ways that we can do that is through prayer and the proclamation of God's word, which is what we're doing here. We do it every Sunday, and it's what we are to do with our lives, to share the life-changing good news of Jesus Christ. Chicago is a city whose original foundation was a swamp. And that muck and mire has lasted and seeped into the foundation of this place. It is a city that has a history of racism and oppression. And because of that, it is easy to consider this place too big, too broken, too ingrained in hate to ever see any kind of real change. I had a professor in, uh, in seminary, um, Dr. John Woodbridge, who's fantastic as a person, and I, it's recorded, so I'm going to say it because I owe him money. Uh, Dr. Woodbridge, one of his favorite things to, to teach about was revival and revivals that have happened in, especially in America, revivals that happened in places like New York and places like Chicago, not too all that, all that long ago, where mass gatherings, prayer meetings, businesses, schools would be shut down for days on end, not because people were rebelling and angry and fighting, but because churches were packed out in prayer meetings with people lifting up their voices and confessing sin and turning away from them. And we had asked Dr. Woodbridge all the time, do you think this can happen again? Why hasn't it happened again? That big R word, revival. Why hasn't that broken out yet? And more times than not, he'd take us back to James 4. And James 4, James writes, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desire, the desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. That last one, you do not have because you do not ask God, that was usually his answer to us was, do we actually want that to happen? Do we, do we as a collective unit actually believe that that can happen? Do we pray like it? Do we live like it? Do we actually long for it? In 2 Chronicles, we have the account of Solomon building the temple of God. And when it's done, he's praying, and God speaks to Solomon. And he tells Solomon a piece of instruction that would be not just for that moment, but for moments going forward. In 2 Chronicles 7, God says, When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command locusts to devour the land, or send a plague among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. You do not have because you do not ask. But if you will ask, if my people who have an access and connection to me 
those who are my sons and daughters, if they will be humble and pray and confess and lift up their prayers, I'll hear them, I'll forgive them, and there will be healing and restoration. God moves in the impossible, in the too big, in the too much, in the too scary, in the too dark. Those places and situations where it is clear that the only way something good can come out of the situation if, is if God will step in. It is exactly in those places where he shows up and steps in. We as the people of God in this city, this city that God loves, have a responsibility on behalf of Chicago to lift this place up in our prayers and to ask God to move and heal and redeem and renew it. Now, it probably won't happen overnight. But if God is who we believe him to be, why can't he change the very heart of Chicago? Why can't he change the very heart and soul of Chicago? Why can't he take this place and change it from a place not built on swamp water, but built on the living water? I encourage you, pray, cry out, lift up, and don't give up on this city because there is much for God to do here. So that's our big picture. I want you to consider, because it's easy when we live in this city to live in your own little neighborhood, and you go to the same stores, and you see the same people, and you shop local, and that's great. And you think about your area of Chicago. It's a big city. There's a lot of people. And just because it's happening over there and the problems are on that side of the, of, of the city, it's still your problem. As a Christian, it's your problem. This is our city, and we are called to love and pray and lift up for all of it. But let's talk a little more personal. Demetrius and his band of craftsmen are angry because the gospel is changing people's lives, and they don't like the effect it's having on their business and personal lives. Because the gospel changes lives. That's what it does. And I think that's one of the many reasons why so many of us struggle to make reading the word of God and intentional time with God a priority. Because we know what happens when we do. Because we know that if we allow ourselves to actually get quiet, to actually let the word of God into our heads and hearts, if we are confronted by God, then we have to deal with the areas of our lives that we want to maintain, maintain control of. We know what God can do. We have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. We know what God wants to do in our lives to make us more and more into the image and likeness of Christ. But we also know the pain and lack of control we have in that process. And let's be honest, we like comfort and we like control. So rather than get quiet and get invested into the word of God, we keep him at a distance. We try and keep our relationship with God surface level. That's just not possible. That's not how a relationship with God works, or any relationship for that matter. If you have a relationship, whether it be a marriage, a friendship, and you get to a certain point in that relationship, and you decide, okay, I'm done learning about this person. I'm done knowing about them. I'm done really engaging with them. You stop calling, you stop texting, you stop hanging out. What happens to that relationship? It dies. Why would a relationship with God be any different? There is no just maintain the status quo. Okay, I've gotten to this level of Christianity, I've gotten to this level with God, and I'm just going to stay right here. That's just not true. You're either moving, progressing deeper into your relationship with God, or you are falling away from him. There is no just standing still. There is always more of God to know, always more of God to experience, to embrace, and he constantly wants to engage with you and with me. 
He wants to meet us where we are and then take us and help us grow and develop us, making us more and more into the image and likeness of Christ, guiding us to see the places in our lives where we have yet to give him control, the places we still think we know better than him. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. God has given you a new identity, new passions and desires. And while we receive all of that at salvation, it is a process, a continual struggle for us here and now to choose to live into that reality and accept it rather than going back to our old life that we long for sometimes. It's kind of like having an old pair of shoes. They're worn, they're comfy, right? You just slip on, kind of conform to your foot. But let's be honest, the laces are like string bare. They're barely laces at this point. The soles are worn out where you can definitely feel the ground underneath you at all times. There's a hole on the side, but you just kind of ignore it. You wear them because they're comfy. You justify them as good enough, fine. When at the same time, you have a brand new pair of shoes custom made for your foot sitting in a box in the closet you refuse to put on. Put on and live into the new shoes. Put on the new life God has given to you. And it starts by making your relationship with God a priority in your life daily. Choosing to spend time with him. And yes, he is going to reveal things in your heart. He is going to reveal things that he wants to change, that he needs to change. And he does it not to be mean, not to be vindictive. He does it because he loves you and he knows what's best for you and he wants to care for you and provide for you and protect you. This mob scene that happens in Acts 19, it lasts for up to two hours. It starts to get out of hand. Finally, the town clerk, which is like the equivalent of a mayor, is able to speak to the crowd in verse 35. He's able to do what nobody else can do. He finally gets the crowd to settle down a bit, and he tells them, look, your concerns over the reputation of Artemis is misguided. Everyone knows about the sacred stone, is what it says in verse 35, a.k.a. the fancy space rock that fell. Everyone knows about this temple and its impressiveness. No one can deny these things. Why are you getting so worked up? Think about what you are doing. He says in verse 37, For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. These men they dragged into the theater had done nothing to disrespect or attack or speak evil against Artemis. These men have done nothing wrong. They weren't speaking negatively against Artemis, meaning that the Christians at that time were preaching a message that emphasized the value and importance of the gospel without tearing others down. See, it's a difference between proclamation and confrontation. In our world, we get so caught up in defending ourselves, going on the preemptive offense of defending ourselves even when someone's not attacking us. We stand and scream and subtweet against so many different things that the church has all too often been known for what it's against rather than what it's for. We want to argue and debate and antagonize as if that's the way to welcome someone into the family of God. Now, I'm not saying we don't take a stand. We do. We call out injustice. We stand up against evil. We should stand up against oppression. We also need to champion grace and mercy and reconciliation and redemption and renewal. 
We can't just be the people who are constantly wagging their fingers at the failures and evil that are happening in this world without being willing to get involved to see life change actually happen. Remember, when the angels show up to the shepherds on the night Jesus is born, the angel tells them what we have, what has happened here, what the gospel is, is good news of great joy. Not a weapon to try and pummel someone into a spiritual submission. What you have to share, Christian, is good news of great joy for all peoples. You have a truth that affects every person on this earth right now. You have the chance to share that truth, to tell others, to live in light of, and to allow the gospel to filter and direct the lives that you live to the decisions that you make on a daily, moment-by-moment basis. When you read through the gospels, As Jesus carries out his ministries, it is the religious of the time who are repulsed by his actions and words. And it is the sinners, the broken, the unclean, the rejects, the helpless and hopeless who are drawn into relationship with him. And he invites them in and he sits and he dines with them and he spends time with them. And yes, he calls them to life change. Yes, he tells them go and sin no more. But he doesn't, doesn't do it through anger and intimidation. He does it through love and compassion. This town clerk, this non-Christian, speaks a word of clarity and common sense to help disperse the crowd. He knows the reputation of Christians is not one of trying to burn down the temple of Artemis. They weren't trying to start a violent violent coup, which is kind of happening in the midst of this theater at this moment. In verse 40, he says, look, we are on the precipice of getting in big trouble with the higher authorities. If this escalates, and nobody wants that. He says, if someone has a real complaint or issue, take it to the proper authorities. Otherwise, let this be done. And one of the few times in Acts, if you've been studying with us, the few times of Acts, this is one of the few times cooler heads actually prevail, because usually the mobs just kind of take control and do what they want. This is one of the few times where the crowd breaks up and no serious issues actually occur. We're going to move into chapter 20, because after these events happen, Like I said, we know Paul wants to get to Rome. But before going to Rome, he wants to go back to Jerusalem. And so he's going to travel a little bit. He leaves Ephesus and Asia to see some disciples in some other places. He travels a little bit. I want to give you a little map because we haven't done map time in a long time. Um, So he is up. Sorry, it's a fuzzy map. We are going to end up up in Troas. Okay, so he is around this area. And we're going to travel up here. And then he's going to spend some time over into Macedonia. He will double back, come back to Troas, and then he's going to go down along the coast and eventually get back down into Jerusalem. So we are currently up around the corner of Asia, right about there. I like map time. He goes to Greece. He stays there a few months. And he's in Greece, and he's enjoying the time there. And then a plot gets hatched to try and kill Paul. What else is new? And so he leaves, and eventually he gets to Troas, like I said. And he travels a bit, and along the way of traveling, he picks up some more traveling companions. He's got a little team with him. And we see in verse 6, in chapter 20, verse 6, it says, We sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed there for seven days. But we sailed away, which means Luke, our author, somewhere along this traveling in these first couple of verses of chapter 20, Luke jumped back into the fold and goes from they did these things to we did these things because Luke is there with him. And so what I want to end on this morning is this last uh, one more story that's coming out of Acts. And it actually, again, happens um, it's right here in verse 7. It's one of the it, – it's a funny story and it's one of the more famous-ish 
infamous maybe stories that's in the book of Acts. We have a guy named Eutychus. Eutychus is known for one thing, falling asleep while Paul is preaching and dying. The believers get together in verse 7 of chapter 20. And they eat together and they hear from Paul sharing on the scriptures and spending some time teaching. The evening goes on. The air is getting thick. Luke tells us there's a lot of lamps in the room. And so the candles are burning and things are getting really thick. There's a lot of people crammed in. Everybody's got full bellies. And then it says in chapter 20, verse 9, a young man named Eutychus sitting in the window sank, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. What a way to wreck a church service. Like, you want to ruin a good time. Poor guy. And that, that idea there, when it, says, um, when it says in verse 9 that he sank into a deep sleep, the, the phrasing is basically he was fighting it off. It's one of those ones where he's trying to keep his eyes open. He's trying, he's fighting it, and he's fighting it, and then eventually it just hits him, and he knocks out deep sleep. Luke's a physician. He knows what dead looks like. Whether he went down there or he looks out, Dave Rico's saying, this is me. This is how I sleep. I just knock out hard. Whether Luke looked out the window or he went down to see what happened, Luke knows what dead looks like. So Paul goes downstairs from the third story. In our translation, it says he bent over him. But in the Greek, it says more like he threw his, his body across the body of this man, Eutychus. Verse 10, it says, Paul went down and bent over him, threw his body on him, taking him in his arms, said, do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up, he had broken bread and eaten. He conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. He picks up the man, tells everybody, it's fine, he's alive, which I'm sure they're all very vested in the situation. And so Paul goes back up into the room after this thing happens, he eats, talks some more, and apparently everybody got a second wind. Someone falling out of a window and dying is a real good way to ruin a meeting. That person coming back to life is a real good way to, like, let's keep this party going. And so they end up hanging out all night long into the next morning when it's time for Paul to leave. The young man, Eutychus, is okay. Everyone's very encouraged. He's not dead. They were there with Paul all night listening to him teach and knowing Paul and the way he teaches in the synagogues and the way it's described, it's usually more of a give and take, right? It's not just kind of a sermon. It's more of a conversation. It's more of a dialogue back and forth. They were there until daybreak. Even a death and resurrection didn't break up this gathering. And this is what I want to end on with us today. Do you remember the first time you had a crush on somebody? First time you were just head over heels, that junior high, high school, over-the-top kind of infatuation. On the phone all night, texting all day, passing notes in school, that like just enjoyment of another person, that like butterfly in your stomach, want to be talking and, and interacting with them all the time, kind of puppy love, kind of infatuation. That real enjoyment of another person. Or even if you have those friends, over the holidays we had a couple opportunities to host some of our friends from out of town, and we found ourselves a couple of times into the wee hours of the night just, just talking and chatting and catching up and sharing stories, and, like, time didn't really matter. 
When a relationship is so special, is so important, so cherished, burning that midnight oil is easy, right? Going out of your way to make time for those important friends becomes a little bit easier, even in our busy lives. For so many of us, that's how it was when we first got saved, right? You're infatuated, you're overwhelmed with joy at the beauty and excitement and fun of this gospel. We're aglow with the revelation of Christ in our lives, overjoyed by the freedom and life and rest that we have found. But as time goes on, what tends to happen? The fun, the newness, the novelty of being a Christian kind of wears off. We start to settle in. Satan starts to make his attacks. It feels like the world gets a little bit louder, a little bit harder to live in, and we begin to struggle with our faith that we were so excited for. Little by little, we compromise here and there, and we ease off on the Jesus talk, and we just start trying to blend in with everybody else. These believers in this upper room, we don't know how long they had been Christians or what their stories were, but we know that they had the chance to spend a night, a long night, gathered together to fellowship, to hear teaching, to pray, to worship God together, and that's what they chose to do. You don't do that if the gathering, if church time is just a thing you do, it's just a box you check off on, you don't spend all night if it's just a, a cultural thing or just a thing that my family does, I guess I'll go. You don't spend all night and into the morning working through doctrine unless there is a hunger and thirst for more of the presence of God in your life. Do you have that kind of longing and desire in your life? Do you have that longing and desire and infatuation and passion to know God more? Do you enjoy God? Do you delight in him? Do you enjoy being in his word and communing with him in prayer and gathering with fellow Christians to worship and just be together and do life together? Do you enjoy God so much that you want to tell others about him? This week with this passage and some other things I was working on, the, the idea of adoration of God has really been bouncing around in my head. Do you enjoy the things it takes to have a relationship with God? Do you enjoy being a Christian? It's not always easy. Sometimes it is a struggle and a challenge. But do you like it? Because let me tell you, God likes you. He delights in you, Christian. He cherishes you. As we pray and we fast and we move forward, I pray that you will engage with God because he wants to have a relationship with you. The ability to read God's word, to engage with him in prayer, these things are gifts and blessings from God. It is engaging with the creator of all existence. The gift of having full and complete access to God was given to us through the death and resurrection of Jesus. In Hebrews 4, the writer of Hebrews says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help, help in time of need. I memorize that as boldly to the throne of God. Because of Christ's sacrifice, we can approach God with confidence, boldly, without fear of rejection or ridicule or being ignored. We can approach God with our worries, our hopes, our dreams, our wants, our desires, our longings. We can go to him and he hears it, he pays attention to it, and it matters to him, and he delights in it. The gospel changes our relationship with God now and gives us access to him that we didn't have before. In Christ, we have the ability to engage with God, to delight him, and to find our joy in him, to go boldly before him with anything and everything. There is nothing too big or too small to bring to God. He delights in all of it because God delights in you. Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. 
In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. This is a prophecy toward the day that we are in, actually the day when Christ would come the first time and then as well as when Christ will return. It's kind of a dual prophecy. Right? We're waiting for that day when the one who is mighty to save will come again. We're waiting for that mighty warrior, the Lion of Judah, the one who rides on the white horse dipped with a robe dipped in blood, the one who stomps out the winepress of judgment. We wait for that day. He is the king. He is the warrior king, and we can rejoice in knowing the power and authority and protection that we can experience under him. He is the great almighty creator of all existence. This huge, almighty, awesome God will rejoice over you with gladness, will give you rest by his love, will exalt over you with loud singing. I think there's some of us here this morning that believe that maybe God, maybe God loves me, but he doesn't like me very much. Or maybe you believe that God is indifferent toward you. And that is a hindrance to us truly engaging with him and enjoying our relationship with God, right? He's God. Why would he care about me? Who am I? Well, look at that verse, Zephaniah 3.17. Circle it, star it. I think we're going to memorize it this year. It says here, God rejoices over you with gladness. He's glad to have you. You make God glad. The gladness he has in you causes God to rejoice. You cause God to rejoice, Christian. It also says there will come a day when this warrior God who has defeated all evil, who is in control of all things, who keeps the world spinning, who holds all existence in his hands, there will come a day where he will sing over you. That he will be so happy that you are in his presence. He will be so happy that he gets the opportunity to provide and care and love and hold you. He will be so thrilled that he sings. And not only is God going to sing over you, he's going to sing loud and proud because you are his child and you bring him gladness and joy. Let me tell you this, it has nothing to do with what you have done or what you can do between now and that day when you meet him. The way God feels about you, the gladness and the joy, this rejoicing and singing over you cannot be earned and you can't lose it either. This is because of who God is and who you are as his child through Christ. It is your birthright as a daughter or son of God. How can the joy of God that, ha that God has for you not cause joy within you to respond? A confidence in God's control of your life to trust him and praise him. You know that God not only loves you, but he likes you. He delights in you. He wants what's best for you. He wants to protect you. He wants to guide you. He wants to shepherd you. He wants to help you and help you live the best life possible. For those of you here who are parents, you know from experience that feeling, that pure, full rejoicing that happened when you met your child for the first time. I know I felt it, holding those kids, the rejoicing that happened within me, not because of who they are, not because of anything they can do for me, not because they worked or earned my favor, but just because of who they are, just because they exist, because Ben is my son and Sophie is my daughter. I love them and I rejoice over them, and often I sing over them, whether they want me to or not. Because I'm their dad and I want to provide and care and protect them. And at the end of the day, I just genuinely enjoy my kids. And I'm not a perfect father like God is a perfect father. So whatever I feel about my kids, however much love and gladness I have because of them, it pales in comparison to what God has for you and for me. He finds great joy in you. He wants to love you and shepherd you and protect you. And there's going to come a day when he sings over you. 
Why wouldn't you have confidence in a God like that? Why wouldn't you enjoy a God like that? Why wouldn't you want a desire to grow deeper and deeper into a relationship with a God like that? Letting that cover even the hardships, even the pain, even the messiness of this life, knowing full well there's going to come a day when he sings over to you. And look, I can't back this up exactly in scripture, but I don't think this is going to be a thing where like he just gathers everybody together and God sings over us. I think this is going to be a thing where it's you and God one-on-one in a personal, intimate moment, and he's going to sing blessing. He's going to sing and rejoice in his gladness over you. I think it's going to be personal one-on-one that he's going to sing over me. Like everything else about our relationship with God, we love because he loved first. We're saved because he made a way for us to be saved. We are his children because he chose us. And we can have joy and delight and adore him because he first has joy and delight and adores to know us. The opportunity to lift your voice in prayer on behalf of those individuals and on our city and ourselves that we desperately need them, that's a gift. The opportunity to know the creator, sustainer, and savior of all existence on an intimate, personal, and deep level. The opportunity to experience the joy of knowing and being known by God. It is all available for the person who would put their faith in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if it's available for you, it's available for me, it's available for all of us, and it's available every day, every moment. God is at all times inviting you into his presence, saying, come and know me better, come and know me deeper, and watch what I'm going to do in your life. So let's pray for hearts that desire to know him deeper. God, that is our prayer. Our prayer is that we would know you deeper that we would know you more, and not just that we would know you more and know you deeper, but that we would desire to know you deeper. We would have a hunger and thirst to know you more. That this thing that we claim that we believe, it would matter, it would affect our decisions, it would affect our time, it would affect our bank accounts, it would affect our relationships, it would affect every aspect of our lives, because that's what the gospel is made to do, is change, to give us new hearts and new desires. God, we know that there are places in our lives. We know there are places in our lives where we don't want to let go. We don't want to give up control. We don't want to give over to you. We know you know better. We know you know what's best. And yet we still hold on to these things. God, help us to let go, to loosen our grip, to let those things go so that you would give us what is better. So that you will fill us with what is best. You are the almighty creator of all existence. We are temporary, finite, here today, gone tomorrow. And yet you choose to know us. You choose to love us. You choose to send your son to die for us. You choose to have a relationship with us. God, we can't explain it. We can't properly understand it, but we can accept it and receive it and live into it and live with thankful hearts and adoration for you. God, help us. Help us to live like we believe you have made us new, that you have made us a new creation. Help us to live like we believe we are your sons and daughters. Help us to desire to know you more. Help us to have a desire to engage with you more, to spend time with you more to further and deepen our relationship with you. God, we thank you for wanting a relationship with us. 
God, we love you. Help us to love you more. God, we, we believe. Help us where we don't believe. God, we desire you. Help us in the areas where we don't desire you. God, we thank you for being who you are. We thank you that we can run to you at any time with anything and that you care and that it matters to you. God, we thank you and praise you for who you are, for what you have done, what you are doing, what you're going to do. God, we thank you. Amen.